Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week, I get to welcome on board another amazing sponsor of the podcast, PNW Components. PNW was founded by a husband and wife team, Aaron and Emily, up in the Pacific Northwest after a long history working in the bike industry. I first discovered PNW probably four years ago when I got a dropper post for one of my mountain bikes, and I really loved their focus on the customer. The product was well-reviewed when I looked at it over the web, and the delivery of the package was awesome. I just overall had a great experience. So I was pretty stoked when I started to learn about their growing focus on the gravel sector, because as you know, I've been fascinated by the growing influence of the mountain bike side of the sport to gravel, whereas it's been dominated historically from a road orientation. I think this outside influence from the mountain bike side is really starting to benefit consumers. So I've been using the PNW dropper post on my gravel bike right now, and I'm actually using one of their suspended dropper post, which has been interesting. And I want to give you some more feedback about that in a later episode. But suffice it to say, it's been a really eye-opening part of my riding. The second component I've been using has been their Coast Handlebar. At 48 millimeters, it's considerably wider than I had been using. And what's been remarkable is the leverage I can get from the outside of the bar. That combined with a short drop and a 20 degree flare has made me feel super dialed on the technical side of my riding. So anyway, go check out what they're doing at pnwcomponents.com. I think as you dig in, you'll start to see where their philosophy comes from and start to appreciate whether that'll fit into your riding. They've generously offered our listeners 15% off their first order. Simply use the code THEGRAVELRIDE upon checkout, and that 15% off will be applied to your order. With thanks to PNW, let's talk about this week's episode. This week, we've got Dr. Alan Lim, founder of Scratch Labs on the podcast. A couple things I love about Dr. Lim is that he's a super straight shooter, and he's the first person to tell you, go cook something in your kitchen before buying something off the shelf. I had the pleasure of talking to him while he was actually running and coaching a training camp from his car out in Colorado with some professional athletes. So there's a few hiccups and, and fun things that happen during the conversation that I've left in for you to enjoy. Alan's work with Tour de France athletes and ultra-endurance athletes are really applicable to what we do in the gravel scene. Many of us, you know, our normal rides might be two to four hours, but a lot of the events we sign up for could be eight, 10, 12 hours. So how do you graduate your feeding and nutrition and hydration strategy from those shorter rides to the longer rides? What Dr. Lim describes and recommends really resonated with me, and I hope it does with you too. With all that said, let's dive right in. Dr. Alan Lim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. I think it would be interesting for my listeners to hear what you're doing at this exact moment. Um, skills and drills. I'm actually in the middle of a training camp following a group of riders who are doing some um, speed work, baseline work on a little loop here in the Colorado. Um, we're doing a little bit of experimentation too today with some hydration strategies. And after they finish this set, we're going to give them, uh, uh, you know, our new super fuel product that we've been playing with. We're going to try a little experiment and do a 
time trial uh, effort up a big climb here, and then that's the workout for today. So we're back in training camp mode, which is, uh, you know, kind of strange, kind of weird, but uh, glad to be at it again. A lot of caution being taken. It's super exciting to hear that. It's super exciting to hear that kind of we're getting back in action because I know it's fun to look forward to the idea that racing and events are going to happen later in the year. So that's good to hear. To take a step back for a second, Alan, could you tell us a little bit about Scratch Labs and how the company was formed and what the mission was? Yeah, so Scratch Labs started in 2012. It was myself, a good friend, Ian McGregor, who was a former pro cyclist, um, and my old college buddy, Aaron Foster. And really, Scratch came from uh, kind of the work that I did on the pro cycling tour, you know, uh, I worked as a sports scientist for many years in pro cycling and, um, developed a lot of, I guess, you know, recipes, ideas around nutrition, fueling the athletes I worked with. Um, and around 2010 or so, I ended up on the radio shack team with Lance, that whole thing kind of exploded. Um, and I just wanted to strike out on my own and, not deal with all the BS around pro cycling anymore. Um, athletes were asking me for this sports drink I used to make from, and I never really thought it could turn into a business, but, you know, started making it to help them out. Um, and slowly through word of mouth, this company has grown into what it is today. Uh, we've always had a mission to help people become better. Uh, that was, and has always been my mission as a sports scientist and a coach and, we ended up naming it Scratch Labs, not only because we believe that food and drink is better from scratch. So we have these cookbooks with Chef Bijou Thomas, uh, the Feed Zone, uh, you know, cookbook, Feed Zone Portables, Feed Zone Table. But I was starting my life over again. So, you know, the name really comes from the idea that no matter where you find yourself in life, it's never too late to start from scratch. Gotcha. And so that original hydration mix, what was the composition of that? And was it was it different than what you were seeing on the market at that time? Yeah, you know, uh, on the market at the time, I think that principally everybody who I knew who was an athlete was diluting their sports drink. And they're diluting their sports drink because the sports drinks were too sugary. They were too sweet. Uh, um, their flavoring was too strong. So they would often give athletes flavor fatigue. And, you know, for many athletes, especially long days and grand tours like the, like the Tour de France, um, everyone would get GI distress. And then lastly, you know, conventional sports drinks just never had enough sodium to actually replace what was being lost in sweat. So a typical sports drink might have 400 milligrams of sodium per liter, but a normal athlete, you know, would be losing between 800 to 1,000 milligrams of sodium per liter. So it wasn't like it was revolutionary. We just diluted sports drinks and added more salt. Um that was all that was needed. But I think that most sports training companies were trying to sell to mass market consumers and make these drinks taste super, super syrupy. And that was just not tenable for most of the athletes I worked for. Do you think there was also sort of a line of delineation between the products on the market that were focused kind of more on, on shorter events or just that, that sort of instant gratification of a, a sweet drink versus kind of the longer Tour de France level stage racing that you had spent a lot of time thinking about? Yeah. You know, most sports drinks that were on the market were made for people stuck on uh, the 405 in California. 
in our <laughs> you drink one bottle and be like, oh, that was good. I'm an athlete. I'm stuck in traffic. No big deal. I mean, why do you? Why, why do they sell sports drinks at gas stations? I mean, come on. Give me a break, right? Right. The whole thing is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it's interesting for me. You know, the um, as a gravel cyclist and as gravel events have taken on this new shape and form of being almost ultra distance in nature, I think it's really kind of forced cyclists to think about nutrition a little bit more seriously because obviously there's a huge difference from your you know your three hour Saturday group road ride to a DK 200. Have you seen sort of the rise of gravel kind of create additional demand and maybe additional thoughtfulness from customers? Well, we certainly see a lot of gravel customers. Um, I, I, I think that generally speaking, because they get to eat when they want to, um, or there's a little more flexibility because the day is so long that the, you know, the, the idea of real food that we really brought to the pro Peloton really resonates with that crowd as well. You know, nobody wants to be you know, eating a ton of sugary, syrupy, gel-like substances. They certainly have their place and they're certainly needed at times, but if you can supplement with real food, I think that um, the whole entire competition becomes much more enjoyable, right? And you have less GI distress. You can encourage more eating. Um, you can get more, more, more salt and savory flavors back into a person's body. So I do see this uh, movement towards real food in that world. Um, the interesting thing that, that we also see, you know, now that we've released the Superfuel product, a lot of buy-in from that crowd with that liquid fueling as well, right? So it's, it's, it's both sides of the, the extreme. And I think that most gravel athletes are pragmatists more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things I'd love to drill in on because one one thing I love is your you always make a point to mention kind of real foods and that being an option. And I know you have cookbooks that can help cyclists make foods for on the go use. Can you talk about some of those things that you encourage people via your cookbooks? Yeah, you know, I, I always tell people that sports nutrition starts in your kitchen. It doesn't start with the package that you open up, right? It starts with how you're feeling during your entire week leading up to an event, how much carbohydrate you're getting, are you glycogen loaded, et cetera. Are you sharing meals with good friends and family? Are you keeping yourself both physically and emotionally well? The social component of food plays a role in all of that as well. So, you know, despite the fact that we do sell, you know, prepackaged products and, uh, you know, sports drink and all of these products that are convenient for athletes to be able to better fuel and hydrate. Um, it, it, it's true also that you need to be making as much real food as possible if you're going to be a high-performing athlete. So, and I wanted to make sure that people understood both sides of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting moving on to this, the new Superfuel product that you guys recently released. It's a drink mix, but it's got a high caloric count. I think that can be a foreign concept yes. for a lot of people. Could you kind of talk about that product and how you're, how people were using it pre-production and, and how you envision now that it's in the market, athletes using it? Yeah, so... I always felt that if a uh, carbohydrate solution was too high, you know, anything above 6%, uh, 
that it had uh, um, could create the problem of creating GI distress. Um, and what was, you know, effectively happening is that if you've got something that is too high of a concentration, the molecular concentration is high and water likes to follow a, a gradient from an area of low molecular concentration to high molecular concentration. So, you know, for reference point, blood is about 280 to 290 milliosmoles per liter. That's a way of measuring the molecular concentration of blood. So 280, 290. Um, if you have a sports drink that is higher than that, you're going to have a difficult time getting water into um, the body. If you put 100 grams of just basic sugar into a sports drink, you'll have a number like 555, right? You'll have a number that is just way too high for water to absorb. Um, if you use a more complex carbohydrate, it's on the market were things like maltodextrin, which would digest too fast. And when they digested, you'd have a bunch of simple sugars. It'd be like loading up a plane with a bunch of passengers, passenger giving birth as soon as, you know, they got on the plane. Um, so we knew that there was an issue of, well, athletes can't always eat their food in the middle of the race. It's easier to drink it because they're breathing so hard because there are tactical things going on because, you know, they might not be able to reach in the back of their pocket and actually, you know, handle it. Um, so, but we also knew that we needed to make something that didn't explode in their gut and that wouldn't give them GI distress. The solution came when we found a really, really complex carbohydrate that looked more similar to, say, muscle glycogen, which is the way carbohydrate is stored in, the, in, in muscle, where you have this very, very branched, very complex uh, carbohydrate it's very big, so it's got like 60 to 7 sugar units, whereas a typical malto might only have 5 to 15. Um, and it's wrapped in itself kind of like a, like a, like a wreath. Net-net, um, it ends up slowing its digestion. It makes it super, super soluble, so it, it feels and tastes more like water. But you can end up putting a lot of calories into it, and uh, it solves the problem of being able to to drink your fuel because this carbohydrate is more like a regular, you know, say carbohydrate starch than it is uh, a simple sugar or even maltodextrin. Interesting. So, you know, in an, in a long gravel event, how would you use this? Like if you're, if you're taking bottles, you know, every hour, is this something that someone could theoretically use every hour or is it the type of thing that, every other hour or every four hours, you might want to get one of these in your resupply kit. It depends on how many calories you're burning, right? So a calorie is still a calorie is still a calorie. People get all sort of messed up when they hear that it's a high carbohydrate solution that has a lot of flexibility. They think that there is some prescription um, that all of a sudden they can change the rules in terms of their caloric consumption. But the reality of it is this, is that if you're trying to get 300 calories an hour, you still need 300 calories an hour. This is just a uh, maybe convenient way to do that. Um, if you need to get, you know, 400 calories in an hour, you know, this is a convenient way to do that. Um, but you can't separate out what your caloric needs are from your hydration needs. So maybe what you actually need is, you know, 400 calories uh, an hour, but you also need a liter and a half of fluid. 
well, you know, if you're drinking, say, our regular sports drink, which is 80 calories, and you need two of those bottles an hour, well, that's 160 calories, and you've got your hydration. And so maybe you'd only need to drink half a bottle of the super fuel to get those extra calories in. So there is some math to be done, but that math is always predicated upon what it is that you know you need in terms of both water and calories. And so I'll give you an example. You know, when the pro riders on EF use this throughout the year, what we see is a very different behavior when it's hot versus when it's cool. So during the classics, when their fluid needs are much lower, maybe they only need a bottle of but their caloric needs are still very high. Maybe they need 400 calories an hour. They might just use super fuel the whole entire time because it's got the same amount of sodium per bottle as a regular sports drink, but it's just more calorically dense. But as they get into the, say, the, the hotter races in the summertime, because they need so much more, maybe two or three bottles an hour, they're making up a lot of those calories by volume. And they might only drink one super fuel bottle you know, every two or three hours or, you know, so they might end up only drinking two of the high cal bottles over the course of a race, but they might end up drinking 15 regular bottles. Right. Right. So doing that math, there is a, there is a calorie number that the body cannot process per hour that you, you, if you exceed it, where do those calories go? Are they just wasted calories in your body? It's not that your body can't use them. Your body will, you know, um, your blood sugar will rise. You'll, you'll, you'll end up absorbing that in the muscle or in the fat cells. You'll store it. You, you know, if, if you ate so many calories, like during a dinner, you release the hormone insulin, which moves those calories into fat cells and muscle cells, uh, for storage. Um, I think that what you're really referring to is that there's a maximal absorption rate for, um, calories. So a typical person can't absorb 100 grams of carbohydrate across their small intestine an hour, right? Um, and that depends on, on your body size. Certainly a bigger person with a bigger gut is going to be able to move more carbohydrate in. But as a rule of thumb, uh, someone who is really fit and who has got a really good GI tract will only move 100 grams of carbohydrate in. Uh, what happens to that excess is it starts to, you know, create some, a bit of a traffic jam like trying to get more people into Disneyland than the gates can actually pull across. And so you get some traffic and if you build up too much traffic, you end up getting GI distress. And if that GI distress is really prolonged, water can flow from the inside of your body into your intestinal lumen. And enough, if enough water then moves into the intestinal lumen, then it comes out your butthole. Um, and that's called diarrhea. <laughs> Not good for any race day. No, but as a pro male, you probably know that you give yourself at least one pass every year to accidentally shit yourself, right? <laughs> exactly. There's a reason that's why. Your rule of thumb? I, think, there, I think that's what you told me that. <laughs> There's a reason why I've got a roll of toilet paper in my my bike bag. Exactly. Everyone's seen it. Everyone knows you have it. It's fine. <laughs> No, it is really interesting. And I remember kind of going back to my days as an Ironman triathlete was when I really first thought about liquid calories because I was struggling to continue to eat the same things hour after hour because I'm not the fastest triathlete in the world. Um, so it was interesting. And I actually 
my first go around with liquid liquid calories did not end up going well because it was early days and I think it sort of it just I I couldn't get it my body couldn't process it in the way that it sounds like your product is designed to be processed. Well, it's not so much processing it. It might have been that your body processed it too fast, so you digested it too fast, and you went from having, you know, uh, these big, complex carbohydrate molecules that weren't taking up much room in the gut to blowing up like a Trojan horse to all these little pieces. And here's what's interesting about this idea of osmosis or osmotic pressure. Water likes to move from a concentration of low to high, right? And that concentration is dependent upon the number of molecules, the number of things, not the, not the mass or the caloric density of those things. So you're talking about, you know, one big Lego structure made with like 100 Legos. If all those Legos are connected, that one big Lego structure, even though it's 100 times bigger than a single Lego, puts the same amount of pressure on the gut. And so what you want is you want a big carbohydrate molecule that breaks apart slowly that digests evenly so that you never overwhelm the gut. As those little molecules break off, they are quickly by the body, and so you don't build up this excess uh, traffic jam or pressure, um, you know, at the, at the gates of your, of your GI tract or your small intestine. So, yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of the original kind of high-calorie liquid carbohydrate stuff were made with, uh, you know, these long chain carbohydrates that weren't actually that long. They were more like, as I said earlier, five to 15 glucose units, as opposed to the super fuel, uh, carbohydrate called cluster dextrin or highly branched cyclic dextrin, which is between 60 to 70 glucose units, um, in a more complex structure that takes a little harder to break down. Yeah. I think, you know, one big takeaway for one big takeaway for the listener is I think, Test and learn. So figure out what what your body can. Yeah, what what you enjoy, yeah. what you can eat. You know, some people can eat blocks all day long or bars all day long, but other people will either get bored with it or their their stomach will revolt and simply won't um, enjoy it or allow it to go down. Yeah, and you know, use common sense. Uh, in some ways, there are no rules. Like if. You love eating little potatoes that are soaked in Parmesan cheese and olive oil with an ample amount of salt. That sounds pretty good to me. You know, if for some reason Snicker bars work for you, then go for it, right? Uh, you're your own experiment. Everyone is different. There are some rules of thumb about how much, you know, fluid, salt, and carbohydrate you need. So be mindful of that and uh, create some plans. Experiment with them in the field and, and see what seems to work best for you. I think one of the things that's been interesting during the pandemic is, you know, with all these DIY gravel challenges being thrown out there, um, I've got upcoming SBT virtual gravel event in August where it's going to be a massive day and I need to figure out exactly how I'm going to resupply, what I'm going to be able to bring with me, where am I going to get my water from throughout the day. And I think a lot of gravel athletes are, are kind of going through the same thing. It was one thing. To, to plan for a DK 200 where they knew there were going to be aid stations, but it's another one planning your own DIY gravel event in your own neck of the woods and figuring out how do I get the right things for my body at the right time during a long day out on the bike. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that just takes, you know, time and patience and the prep you do off the bike is as important as what you do on the bike. So 
you know, getting your little foods cut up and prepared, you know, wrapping them properly, getting them in the bags, getting the coolers out, you know, convincing a friend or, you know, someone who lives with you to come out and support you that day or to, you know, whatever, driving out on the course beforehand and leaving stash bags for yourself. It all takes time and work if you're going to do it and not totally fall apart and have as enjoyable of uh, experience as possible, right? Yeah, no, I think those are good words of advice because it's, it's, you know, it's not every day we go and bang out 80 miles off road with 10,000 feet of climbing or something like that. You got to be, you got to be conscious that, you know, one of the great things about going to an event is they've, they've got, you've taken care of a little bit, like there's a safety net with the aid stations and, you know, and doctors on course and things like that. But if you are out there on your own, it's, it's important to think both about your nutrition, your hydration, and obviously your equipment and, and sort of, um, you know, ability to repair bikes on the trail as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Bring that too. Bring your cell phone, bring those tools, bring the salt, bring the water, bring the carbohydrate. Uh, don't forget the sunscreen, right? Exactly. Hey, I also wanted to touch on recovery drinks because I know, I know you have a product in that vein, but I also know you, you've sort of talked about how you can make them on your own. Is it important to kind of look at a recovery drink or a recovery product after every ride, or is that only rides of certain duration? Um, you know, I would say that it's any time that you're working really, really hard. So, you know, even with the best riders in the world that I work with, we might only do two or three hard workouts a, a week, right? Um, they might be riding every day, but only two or three of those really just totally take it out of you. And when you do a, a workout that really takes it out of you, or you do any workout at all, it's really, really important that you eat after that workout. Um, there are a lot of metabolic advantages to eating after a workout. You'll preferentially put that fuel that you just ate back into the muscle that was just working. Whereas if you eat most of your calories when you're at rest, the uh, insulin will work on both adipose cells and on muscle cells. So you'll spread that, that fuel across the whole entire body in proportion to your fat and muscle mass. But when a muscle has just worked out, it's hypersensitive to the hormone insulin. And so when you eat after a workout, most of what you eat goes back in uh, lean as an athlete, right? So, you know, the adage is always try to eat after a workout. Now, what, whether you need a recovery drink or you don't need a recovery drink really depends on, I think, convenience. We, we only use recovery drinks in those situations where we know we need to get a lot of calories back in an athlete, but we don't have a bowl of chicken fried rice laying around, right? Or we don't have a chef, you know, uh, who has a meal prepared for uh, the athlete. Um, you know, I, I went back home for Christmas to stay with my mom and visit and you know she's a 80 year old chinese woman and i got back from my ride and she was like i made you some recovery food and i was like oh my gosh this is the best ever um you know the name recovery only connotes that it's something that you're eating after a workout to start that recovery process but it can be a drink it can be food it can be chocolate milk it can be whatever is convenient we make a product that is effectively chocolate milk or a chata milk or coffee milk, um, four to one ratio of carbohydrate to protein, uh, seems to work the best in terms of restoring muscle glycogen, but you know, you can have a, you can have a, a pizza if you want to. <laughs> well, I've, I've certainly been known to do that, Alan. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I'll tell you this much. My last four fronts I worked, uh, 17 out of the 21 stages, the riders ate chicken fried rice when they got back on the team bus. And the other four stages, they had pizza. <laughs> That sounds good. Let me ask you another question, Alan. So on occasion, I've come home from a long gravel ride and just felt like I hadn't hadn't eaten enough maybe when I was out there on the trail and I'm maybe 20 minutes from home, an easy pedal, and I might choose to have another another energy bar. Am I better served kind of waiting to, to sort of shift gears into a recovery mix or recovery food? Or should I eat that bar if I'm hungry? No. Eat the bar if you're hungry. Okay. And in fact, if you are doing a really long ride and you're coming home and you're really hungry and you got food in your pocket, uh, start the recovery process by eating all that food during your cool down. Uh, The sooner that you can eat and the more you can eat while you're exercising, the more that will actually go back into restoring that muscle glycogen. Um, And so, you know, even in a bike race, uh, if an athlete has been dropped, and they're just riding the Gruppetto or the last pack into the finish, we'll start loading up them up with food and drink at that point in time. We won't wait until they come off the bicycle to do so. Okay. And is there an ideal window to get that recovery meal in once you've gotten off the bike? Yeah, probably within an hour is uh, the most ideal scenario. Um, hey, Craig, I'm going to stop these riders for a second and, and load them up with more fuel now that we're talking about fuel. So uh, hang tight for a second. We'll keep keep on going. You got it. You guys want to super fuel it up? That was pretty good, guys. How'd it feel? Let's uh, let's switch bottles and just go easy because we got that effort up Lee Hill. Those are super fuels. Um, if you can put as much of that bottle down between here and Lee Hill, so that all you're doing is just drinking if you need to drink, but you're totally topped off with respect to hydration and fuel, you can just rip the effort. Oh, is that an extra scratch bottle? Just keep it in your cage. Use it on the climb. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm in the middle of a podcast right now. You guys want to do a cameo? Alan, do you want to say something to the world? Selling Noble, everybody. Are we allowed to eat these or something? Yeah. You can go either, either super fuel or you can go the right space, whatever. I just want you guys hopped off so that when you hit that climb, you don't, you detonate because you detonate. You don't detonate because you guys are out of fuel. You detonate because you can't sit straight and you won't be able to ride for a week. Yeah. Yeah. Not because you bonk, right? There's a difference between not having the energy on that last effort because you're not fueled versus you just cooked. But I do want some experience with this because in situations where you guys are racing and you're not going to be able to eat, right, that could totally save you. Thanks. Sorry about that interruption. No worries. I don't think there's a better way to underscore the importance of calories and hydration than overhearing your conversations with these athletes and just underscoring how fueling up before that last hill climb and that last repeat is going to be critical to their performance. Yeah, because here's the deal. 
they're going to be going so hard in that last 45 minute effort that they, they won't be able to fuel. And if they're not fueled before that effort, it won't matter. They won't be able to make enough in that last effort of the day. Right. So now that we're done with that, just finished that effort and they have about 30 minutes before they start the next one. This is the only time that they can actually stock up again. Right. And have the fuel on board for the last effort. I think it's interesting as as gravel athletes obsess over the events or the routes that they're going to be tackling to kind of think about it in that context of like, okay, I need to be fully topped off before this big climb or this technical descent because I'm not going to be getting anything in my body for at least half an hour because it's just not feasible to even reach down and grab a water bottle. Yeah, exactly. And so when you plan your nutrition as a gravel rider, it behooves you to look at the course and maybe not even do it based upon like anything more than the logistics of what's possible and when you're going to be in these deserts. Yeah, I think I think that's the, if you don't think about it in that way, inevitably you're going to get caught out and uh, get into a, a situation where you haven't physically been able to consume anything for a while. That's right. That's right. And I love simulating this stuff in training because it's when the point gets driven home. Like you can talk about it in theory, but if you're not constantly reminding the athletes to do it in training, and you don't have the resources there from them to feel the difference, then it doesn't get driven home. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly true. And I, I think there are a lot of really hard lessons for the average gra- gravel athlete because these events can be so outside your norm. The distances or the course profile can be so different from what you're used to. It's really important to put a lot of thought into nutrition and hydration before tackling one of these things. And as you said, do a little testing and learning. Put yourself in the hurt locker in a place where you're, you can be safe and you can get home rather than trying to figure it out at uh, SPT Gravel or Dirty Kanza. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that was actually really, really appropriate, right? In terms of a uh, little fly on the wall and, and, and seeing what, 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 what happens. Yeah, totally. And I appreciate you making the time today to join the podcast. I know you just got back from another training camp and you're in the middle of coaching athletes right now. The other training camp was interesting. Yeah, the other training camp was interesting. It was with the Nike Barman Track Club. Uh, so all running, right? But same type of issues. Um with respect to fueling and hydration and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think this, so. It is interesting, and 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 it must be super fascinating for you as a as a sort of someone who looks at this from a scientific perspective to see how performance in other disciplines, other sports, kind of relates and and differs from what we experience as cyclists. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Cool, man. Cool. Well, I will put a, a link to Scratch Labs and all your products in the show notes. And uh, again, I really appreciate the time and advice for all our listeners. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. If you guys ever have any questions, don't you know? Don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm easy to find at the info at Scratch Labs box. I've got a great CX team, but for questions they can't handle, uh, they usually come to me. So uh, we're always here to help. Awesome. Have a great one, Alan. Good to talk to you, man. Okay, thanks, Craig. Enjoy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
I hope you learned as much as I did in that conversation. I think there were some great takeaways and it was a lot of fun having the conversation. Big thanks to PNW for sponsoring this week's episode. And big thanks to you and everybody who's been visiting buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. Your contributions and support are critical to what we do at the gravel ride. As always, we welcome your feedback across social media channels or hit me up directly at Craig at thegravelride.bike if you have ideas for future episodes or any comments about this episode. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 